So let me rewind and try that all over again. Isaiah chapter 6 is where I want you to go. While you're turning there, I do um, want to ask you to be in prayer for our missionaries that are in Israel. Friday night before last, I was in Ashkelon and was in meetings there. And actually, with one of our missionaries in Ashkelon, walked out on the beach after dark. We were there probably till 10 o'clock at night before we drove back up toward Tel Aviv. And then that next morning, before daylight, is when everything erupted literally on that beach where we were. It's just unbelievable that we were there. But what I wanted to tell you is in those meetings... I was with two missionary families, young people, young couples with small children, and they were evacuated. In fact, if you ever want to see in the pictures, I can share them with you. But they were evacuated and ended up in the same place I was before I left. And I'll tell you, if I'm struggling with anything right now, it's just the thought of getting to leave and them staying. Now, there's some good things that are happening around them to ensure their safety, and I believe if things don't de-escalate pretty quickly, they'll be removed from there probably to Europe. Um, but when I left where I was, I just thought, you know, I'm, I'm no better than any of these that are staying, and how I wish those young families and little children, three, one with three little girls. And it just broke my heart that they're still there, although we know that God is with them. And just pray with me as you think about what's going on in Israel that God will put a very close hedge of protection around our people there that are sharing the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would encourage you to continue to pray for God's people. Uh, God has a plan for the Jewish people. I do not believe in replacement theory or theology that the church has replaced Israel. I think there's still a very clear plan for Israel that God uh, will, will bring. And we want to remember the fact that, that so many of them are just lost, just absolutely lost. And it's incredible how they can, on a daily basis, literally walk over sites that you and I learn about and read about in God's Word. And all of that incredible revelation of God is everywhere around them, but they're still in in a lot of darkness. Um, I talked to one young lady who had perfect English, probably better English than I do. And we had a great conversation. And I was just talking to her about spiritual things. This was before uh, everything happened Saturday morning. And uh, was talking to her about her faith and that kind of thing. She said, I'm Jewish, but I'm really not religious. 
And she was talking about the people that lived in her community, which is the suburb community of Tel Aviv. And she said to me, you know, really, we're just atheists. I mean, she knew that word, and she knew what she meant when she said that. And again, we're, we're talking about the people that God chose as His people. And we mean much to God too. And when I use that language, God loves the world, right? And, and God has showered down His blessings upon us as Americans. Uh, but, but the Jewish people, God chose them. And our Savior was a Jew, was a first century Galilean. And we just need to pray that through this, because again, I take you back to what I said this morning, this is the worst thing that's happened in that country in 50 years, and it's actually even worse than the Yom Kippur War of 1973. So let's just pray together that God, again, will protect our missionaries that are there, that are telling people about Jesus Christ, and let's pray that God uses this uh, to be something that would cause His people to turn to Jesus who came from them. So just hear my heart in that regard tonight. Isaiah chapter 6 is one of those great, wonderful passages of Scripture from all the Bible. One of the finest passages from this great book of Isaiah. And it's a vision that Isaiah himself receives at a moment when he needed it most. And it's a vision just of God of seeing God truly as He is. And tonight I pray that God would use these familiar verses to cause us to look upward and to see God as God really is. So let's read the passage, Isaiah chapter 6. I will begin in verse 1 and then read through down or down through verse 7. Isaiah 6, 1 through 7. Scripture says, In the year... That King Isaiah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings, with twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of His glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of Him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, then flew one of the seraphims to me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar, and he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquities is taken away, and thy sin purged. Lord, I want to thank you for 
the blessing of being alive and being a part of your work on planet earth. Thank you, Father, for being a God who is sovereignly in control. And I pray tonight you would just remind us of that deep abiding truth that while the war is raging uh, around the world and while there are a lot of people in unstable conditions and while there are diseases and all kinds of pestilence around us, Lord, You are in control. You are God. And Father, You have a plan that cannot be thwarted. And tonight, I just pray that we would see You as You are. For Father, when we see You, we see exactly what our, need, what our eyes spiritually need. And I pray, Lord, tonight that we would leave here with vision like Isaiah received all of those years ago. I ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. There was an old preacher by the name of C.L. Brenner, and I heard him say something many years ago in a conference, and it's just stuck in my heart ever since, and he simply said this, there is much that I do not know about God. Simple enough statement and very true. We only know a fraction of what maybe could be known about God, but he went on to say this. He said, while I only know so much about God, what I do know has radically changed my life. And can't we all agree with that tonight? We only know a little bit about God, but what we know about God has completely and totally changed our lives. And Isaiah, this great prophet of old, could say the very same thing. I want you to notice that the background of this text is that Isaiah goes into the temple in Jerusalem, and he saw something there that day when he entered the temple that we all need to see. When Isaiah contemplated God, and he has this vision of God, he didn't just see God as a creator or God as a spiritual being, but he sees God as the king. I want you to notice that in verse 5, Isaiah very clearly says, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So Isaiah here sees God, I would say to you tonight, in a way that really no one else in the Old Testament ever saw the Lord. And he shares this vision of what he sees, and it's a fresh vision of God. May I say to you tonight that I believe the church needs a fresh vision of God. I believe our country needs a fresh vision of God because when you see God as God is, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, you cannot ever be the same. So Isaiah here sees God in all of His greatness. He sees this glimpse of glory and it's a vision that really is never repeated in all of Scripture. I want you to notice that Isaiah, first of all, 
sees God in His sovereignty. He sees God as the sovereign King of the universe. Now, let's think about the time when Isaiah is going into the temple here. The vision takes place, Scripture says, in the year that Uzziah died. Now, who is Uzziah? Uzziah is one of the good kings of Judah. Let me take you on a very quick sachet of Old Testament history just to remind you, you know that when Israel wanted a king, God gave them a king and we talked about him a little bit this morning. The first one was King Saul. After Saul, then there was the man after God's own heart who had uh, a wonderful relationship with God. Not a perfect man, but he was a man who craved the things of God. And, and of course, that's David. So he was all heart. And then when David passes away, Solomon, his son, becomes the king of all the ten tribes, or the twelve tribes, rather, of Israel. And while David was all heart, you know that Solomon ultimately ended up half-hearted because he uh, would take wives from other countries and allow them to bring in the worship of their foreign gods. And Solomon would actually step away from the worship, the true worship of Yahweh God and serve other gods. So he was half-hearted. And then when Solomon dies, the kingdom breaks and you have ten tribes to the north, two tribes to the south. Rehoboam becomes the king over the two southern tribes. Jeroboam becomes the king in the north. And by the time you get to the implements of Jeroboam, he, he goes up to Dan and a couple of other places in the northern country and erects these high places where, particularly at Dan... They would recreate the golden calf. And Jeroboam would say to the people, now bow down and worship this God because He's the God who brought you out of Egypt. So David was all heart. Solomon was half-hearted. And by the time you get to Jeroboam and Rehoboam, they have no heart for God. In the south, the people that still worshipped in Jerusalem, we call that country Judah after the breaking of the kingdom, but there in the south, they would have a mixed bag of kings. The kings up to the north, they were all bad. None of them served God, and consequently in 722 B.C., the Assyrians come in there and they completely do away with those ten tribes to the north. And listen, they have been the lost tribes ever since. And then ultimately in 587 B.C., the southern kingdom, Judah, would fall because again, most of their kings were no heart. They didn't have a heart for God about five, depending on how you count, about five of the southern kings did have a heart for God and tried to lead the people accordingly. And here's what I want you to know. Uzziah 
was one of those kings. Uzziah was one of the good kings. He was one of the godly kings. And so it's very significant here for Isaiah to point out that this is in the year that King Uzziah died. So Uzziah had died and Isaiah was crushed. Uzziah again honored the Lord throughout most of his reign. There were moments when he wasn't the best king either, but through most of his reign he he honored God and because of that his reign was a reign of plenty. The land literally flowed with milk and honey during his administration. Here's an interesting fact. Every time Uzziah led the people of God out to battle, they won because the hand of God was upon him because, again, primarily he was a godly king. But Uzziah died, and when he died, Isaiah was upset. He was fretful about what would happen to Judah. Who could possibly come on the scene now and and be a good king like his trusted friend Uzziah? But in this vision, here's what I want you to see. In the vision, God reminds him that there is only one king who is indispensable. There's only one king that the world can't do without, and that king is God. So you see in the vision, it's a contrast between two kings. In this one verse, you see two kings. Isaiah 6 verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Now, who sits upon a regal throne? A king does, right? And so you have this contrast between God and between a mortal king. You see in this one picture a dead king while you otherwise see a divine king. You see a mortal king and you see an immortal king. You see a human king and then you see a heavenly king. One king had died as all kings do, but one king lived and lives forevermore as no other king can. Scripture says in Lamentations 5 verse 19, You, O Lord, remain forever. God, You remain forever. Your throne from generation to generation. Now I want you to notice carefully what God is doing when Isaiah sees Him. Again, Judah is reeling and rocking because they had lost the good king Uzziah. But what's God doing? Let me ask you tonight, is God in this vision pacing back and forth through the throne room of heaven? Is He wringing His hand? Is He barking orders? Is He scratching His head wondering what's going to happen? No, but you see this God seated upon the heavenly throne. Do you know tonight that there is no panic in heaven? Only plans. So there's God, seated high upon His heavenly throne. 
He's high and He's lifted up. And notice the detail that Isaiah gives us of the vision. God has a train, the end of His robe, in other words, literally filled the temple in this vision. Now what does that mean? You see, when those ancient kings would go out to battle and they'd subdue and conquer another king, they would take the robe, the regal robe of that king that was conquered, and it would be sewn onto the back of their robe. So you could just imagine the picture. If a king had been successful in battle after battle in subduing other kingdoms and other kings, he would have a long train, a long flowing robe. But Isaiah says it's incomparable to the train of God's robe because God is such an awesome conquering king that the train of His robe filled the temple. It wasn't just a long one, but it was so long, it was so impressive that it filled the temple and there He is with a robe like that, in majesty like that, sitting upon His throne. And the picture is here of a God who is in complete control. God is in control. God is in control. Not only then, but now, newspapers and headlines and devastating wars, debilitating disease, destructive crime may say otherwise, but my friend, I'm reminding you tonight according to His Word, God is in control. Isn't it a blessing tonight to know that God is not sitting off in some distant corner of the universe with His thumb in His mouth, pouting because Satan's taken control, and that the world is rocking back and forth, We don't have a God like that. You see, nothing upsets God's apple cart. Everything is going according to His plan, His ultimate plan. You ever heard a story that's called For Want of a Nail? I found it fascinating. I read it years ago, and it's been repeated over centuries of time in a lot of different cultures. But my favorite version goes like this. It says, For Want of a Nail... The shoe was lost. And for want of the shoe, the horse was lost. And for want of the horse, the rider was lost. And for want of the rider, the battle was lost. For want of the battle, the war was lost. For want of the war, the kingdom was lost. Everything was lost for want of a horseshoe nail. Now what does that mean? That means that you and I can look over what might seem to be an insignificant detail that could have great consequences. But hear me, God looks over no details. If the sparrow can't come down to the ground outside of the loving gaze of God. Isn't that God in control? And if the flowers can bloom and the flowers 
out in the field, the wild ones, if they are adored more beautifully and their splendor is greater than that of Solomon in his final clothes and his regal clothes, you know, if God can be in that kind of control, do you think that there's one little part of this universe that's not under His sovereign hand? You see, God sees the details. God looks at things that you and I can't even see. God is in control. God is seated upon the throne. His power is as such that His train fills the temple. I love the way we sing it in the old hymn, Have Faith in God. He is on His throne. Have faith in God. He watches o'er His own. He cannot fail. He must prevail. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. My friend, have faith in God. See God in His sovereignty. But that's not the end of the vision because Isaiah not only sees God in His sovereignty, he also sees God in His purity. I want you to look at what the vision details in verses 2 and 3. Above the throne of God, above it stood the seraphims. Now who are the seraphims? These are praise angels. They have been created specifically to praise God. And so here are the seraphims. Both of them have six wings. And with two of the wings they cover their face. With two they cover their feet. And with two, Scripture says, they fly. So they cover their face not to look upon the white, hot holiness of God. They cover their feet to cover their lower extremities because of the purity of God. And then with two wings, the seraphim begins to fly back and forth there in the throne room of God. And I want you to notice the song. The Bible says in verse 3, And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. So in the song of the seraphim, you see what I would call the chief attribute of God. When the seraphim sing, I want you to notice they don't sing about God's power although we know that God is completely powerful. But their song is not a song of omnipotence. They don't sing omnipotent, omnipotent, omnipotent is the Lord. They don't sing about God's perception. It's not a song of His omniscience. They don't sing about God's presence. It's not a song of His omnipresence. But notice again, that they sing about what? God's holiness. They sing God is holy, holy, holy. Let me remind you tonight that more than God is anything else, God is holy. God is not the man upstairs. God 
is not some nameless creator that we cannot know. He's not like an absentee landlord that you can't ever get a hold of. But God is present in our lives. He's available. But as we approach God, we are to always remember that God is holy. That means He hates wickedness. And one day He'll judge the world in righteousness. See it very clearly. Holiness is not something that God has. And it's not just something that God does. It is what God is. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. It reminds me of 1 Samuel 2 verse 2. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you, Lord, nor is there any rock like our God. How do we approach God? Well, everyone knows that we're to praise God. Everybody knows that we're to worship God, that we're to exalt God. But why? Why do we do it? The psalmist says in Psalm 99 verse 5, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His footstool, for He is holy. Why are we here tonight? Ultimately, because God is holy. Why do we sing our songs tonight? Because God is holy. Why do we open Scripture and read Scripture tonight? Because God is holy. It's interesting to note that the holiness of God, as it's extolled by the seraphim, it's repeated three times. In Hebrew poetry, that's, that's very significant. When something is repeated three times, you take notice. If I were writing you an email tonight, and wanted to emphasize a word or a phrase in that email, I might would highlight the word or the phrase and place it in italics. And you'd read it and you would say, Brother Allen really wants me to see this. But if I really, really, really wanted you to see it more, I might would italicize it and then put it in bold. And it would stand out even more. But the best I could do is I would be typing my email would be to make it in italics, to make it bold, and then do what? Underline it. And then when you read it, you would say, he really wants me to see what he's saying in this word or what he's saying in this phrase. Well, that's what the Hebrew poets would do if they wanted to elevate something. To a superlative degree, that's what they would do. They would repeat it three times. And here's what I want you to recognize. Only once in all of the Bible is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. Only once. Again, it's not when we talk about God's love, and I certainly don't want to diminish that because... Aren't we so thankful that God is a God of love? But it's not His love 
nor is it His mercy, and aren't we eternally thankful that God is a God of mercy? We're on our way to heaven tonight instead of hell because God is merciful. But I want you to see this clearly. More than He is any of those things, our God is holy. He is a holy God. Here's what I want you to know. If you don't understand and appreciate the holiness of God, you'll never be able to appreciate the mercy of God or the love of God or the grace of God. Always remember that the God we serve is holy and we're thankful that we can worship Him and we're thankful that we can know Him tonight and we're thankful that we can relate to Him but as we do all of those things we approach Him from His holiness because He is indeed a holy God. So I want you to see God in His sovereignty. He's seated upon His throne. See God in His purity. He's a holy God. But don't miss this tonight. See God in His glory. Look at what Scripture says at the end of verse 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts and the whole earth is full of His glory. Now, we can't wait to see the unrestrained glory of God when we see Him off of this sin-cursed world. But even in times like these, even in dark and difficult days, honestly, you don't have to look far to see the glory of God. My friend, it is all around us. And it's exactly the place to which this world is headed. Sometimes people will ask, where in the world are we headed? And it's an easy question to answer because we are headed to the glory of God. This world doesn't know its final state yet. We are headed to the glory of God because God is a glorious God. Do you know why you're here? Do you know what your purpose is? Do you know why you were born. We have one purpose in life, and that is fleshed out in a myriad of ways. He doesn't call us all to do the same thing, to live in the same places, to occupy ourselves the same way. God does a lot of things with us, but we all primarily have one purpose in life. And your purpose And my purpose in life is to glorify God. That's why you're here. That's why if it's God's will, you'll wake up in the morning and you'll go about the affairs that you have thought through and prayed through tomorrow. You'll do those things bringing glory 
to God. Anything else, whatever we do that isn't bringing glory to God is a waste of time, talent, and treasure. We are here to glorify God. The Westminster Confession rightly says this, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The whole earth is full of His glory. I like what Paul writes. and This helps us think through how we glorify God in our lives. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31 sums it up perfectly. It says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to what, church? To the glory of God. Whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. When you sing, do it to the glory of God. When you teach, do it to the glory of God. When you parent, do it to the glory of God. When you relate to your spouse, do it to the glory of God. Everything we do, we ought to do for the glory of God. And you know what that does? <laughs> that eliminates those gray areas of life. You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes we think, well, it's just not black or white. Oh, it is too, really. If you get in a situation and you wonder what to do, here's the basic question to ask. If I do this, will it bring glory to God? If I don't do this, my leaving this off, my not saying this my not being in that place, would that bring glory to God? When we ask the question, will what I do or what I don't do bring glory to God, it makes things much clearer than we thought they were. Here's what I want you to know. God is sovereign. He's on the throne. God is holy. He's absolutely pure. And when you see that the way we ought to see that, it makes you appreciate His love and His mercy and His grace all the more. And the world in which we live, as bad as it is, it is still full of the glory of God. It is headed to His glory. And everything we do, we ought to do it to bring Him glory. What a mighty God we serve. Would you stand with me and bow your heads? Let me pray, and as I pray tonight, perhaps the Lord is speaking to your heart. And maybe there's a decision you need to make. Maybe... There's a prayer you need to pray. Perhaps there's a burden that you need to cast to Him in the altar of your heart. He's alive. He's active. He's on His throne. He's pure. He's holy. And He loves you. And out of His love, perhaps He's calling you to do something for Him. 
calling you to make a decision, calling you to lay aside something that's not helping you in life. Whatever God's calling you to do tonight, if you need to come, if you need to pray, if you need to take this with you and pray through things at home, let God be glorified in your life. Do everything you do to bring Him honor and glory because He is the holy God who loves us and who's interested in our lives. Lord, thank You for our time together tonight. Thank You, Lord, for being a God who even though You are infinitely holy, You're infinitely good. And You love us. And Father, You want to relate to and with us and work through us. And God, I just pray tonight that we would allow You to do that. Lord, if there's one who just needs to come and pray, one who needs to make a decision for You, Father, one who needs to lay a burden at Your feet, I pray that, Father, that person would come and that You would be glorified. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we sing a verse tonight,